Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So on this week's show, we have my conversation with Andrew Sean Greer about his new book, Less is Lost, which is a sequel to one of my favorite books in recent years, which was Less. Have you read that one, Medea? I've not read it. I've meant to read it for a really long time, and I have obviously heard very good things. It is like a very celebrated novel. It won the Pulitzer. The Pulitzer, um, yep, that's right. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I thought I thought that was the case. Um, so I've been very curious about it, and when I saw that there was a sequel, I was like, well, maybe this is like a perfect time to kind of pick up the first one. As a person with a four-month-old Unfortunately, I, f- I, I may not have the time right at this moment. <laughs> Difficult, yeah. But <laughs> there's something but, else you're picking is... up at almost all hours of the day. <laughs> exactly. But it's still on my radar. So the one thing just to set the interview up for listeners is that, you know, one of the things that I find really pleasurable about that less world is that it's all about literary publishing, which on the one hand mm. seems like the most, and it's comical in the way that like you and I know that sometimes literary publishing can be. Um, So it's all about those like press junkets and kind of author tours and being an author of quote minor notability. Uh. So, you know, kind of swimming in the world with bigger fish. So it has all those things that for us would be kind of like in group satire, but he's obviously has made it very sticky for a much broader audience. So in the first one, Les is traveling around the world, and there's a romance story in the middle of it. And this time he's traveling around the U.S. in the midst of trying to repair the romance story from the first book. So it's really exciting. It's hysterically funny. And Andrew Sean Greer's writing, which we talk about a little bit on the interview, is just so perfectly satirical like he has just a really great flourish with words which is obvious for a writer but not always present Um, (laughs) not always for sure exactly so it was just a a pure joy and, and love talking to him about this oh i'm so excited to hear the interview all right let's get to it let's do it I'm excited to have Andrew Sean Greer with us on the line today. Andrew is the author of six novels, including The Confessions and the Pulitzer Prize winning Less. He is also the recipient of several prestigious awards, including a National Endowment for the Arts grant and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He joins us today from not his home in San Francisco, but a friend's home to talk about Less is Lost. A sequel to the 2017 smash hit Less, this latest installment finds our beloved and bewildered eponymous gay novelist of minor repute dashing across the American Southwest, the South and East Coast as he scrambles to save and I guess in some ways clarify his relationship with Freddie Pellew and pay back some monumental back rent on the charming San Francisco home left to him by his recently deceased lover Robert Brownburn. As Les takes his fish-out-of-water act on the road, Andrew Sean Greer treats readers to a number of poignant insights on the nature of love, devotion, belonging, and the by turns miserable and, well, miserable condition of being a writer. Welcome to the show, Andrew. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. What a great pressy that was. I'm going to have to steal that. <laughs> it's free for you. So I was, as I was telling you a little bit before we got on the interview, I was a huge fan of Les. 
and very excited to see his story continue in the new novel. So I'm wondering if just to open it up a little bit, can you talk a little bit about how this very quirky, very odd, very gay character came to you and kind of what he means to you as the creator? While I was writing last, I had been planning a very serious novel about a middle-aged gay man walking around San Francisco, which is just the most, I realized, tedious novel you could possibly read. <laughs> and I believe there might be quite a few already around. Um, <laughs> but I was ready to tackle like a gay male protagonist like myself, which I've sort of avoided because I was trying to avoid cliches. And there I was falling right into one. And then I decided the only way out was to flip it and make fun of him and therefore myself a little bit because I realized, oh, no one feels sorry for a gay white man, middle-aged who owns property in San Francisco. Like that's <laughs> that's a highly privileged position now in a way it sure. wasn't in yeah. 1992. So the book came out of that and it was a, just a great joy to write because I wanted, I wanted a book on my shelf, like a queer book that was full of joy. So I worked hard to give it a sort of punch of joy at the end and... I just wanted that book on my shelf because that's my experience. There's a lot of reporting that the queer experience is full of misery and self-doubt and suicidal ideation. And mm -hmm. I felt like that struggle is true. And, but that we've always, the counterpoint to that political and active has always been defiant joy. And I wanted to sort of insert that in there. That totally makes sense. Though I would not say that less is always feels like he has his shit together, in other words. Oh, like no, no, no. He's very much lost. No, he's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the things that strikes me about Les, especially the way that you've set him up, is kind of he is this middle-aged white gay male with property, though not necessarily his, as we kind of find no. out in Les is Lost, <laughs> in San Francisco. And he's also kind of the joy of both books, I think in part is this insider's view of the life of a writer and the kind of silly seriousness of literary publishing. And so on the one hand, this sounds like it would be the most narrow casting kind of interest. And yet, Les obviously was a huge success, and then you have now the second book. So what do you think makes Les such a compelling character for people that aren't necessarily inside the very specific and geographic world that he inhabits? I think people can connect with humiliation. I yeah, think fair enough. Yeah. I think more than we know, like every day offers so many opportunities for humiliation that people either avoid or fall into, and it's upsetting. And to watch someone struggle through it and to see that the writer's world, which seems so I think like austere and Olympian somehow, mm -hmm. is actually like completely absurd not only from the writing space where you're working, but into the prizes and ceremonies and things that seem like they're laurels, but are in fact have their own absurdity, that maybe it takes away some of the mystique because these are readers who are reading this. And so they might be interested in the fact that the life of writers is just as ridiculous as the life of readers. <laughs> now, let's get into the new book. So a quick gloss for readers who haven't read is that the first book was basically about the will they or won't they desperate desire for Les to kind of find this young man, Freddie Pellu. And they get together at the end of the novel, but this new novel opens up with a kind of tension between the two of them. So 
Can you talk a little bit about kind of where they are in their relationship? Well, this is the after the happy ending story. And where they are is that while Les's memory of his great relationship in the past was an older, famous poet, and he was the sort of cupbearer for that man, now he's in the position, unthinkingly, of himself being the writer and therefore Freddie having to, you know, sweep up all the sawdust from the floor from the workshop. And it's an unequal situation, especially since we as a reader know that Freddie is maybe a better writer because <laughs> he's the one <laughs> writing these books, that it's unequal and that Les is uncommitted to the relationship. Mm -hmm. And there's just a vagueness about it and an egotism on Les's part that needs to be corrected, but they haven't gotten there yet. What's interesting, too, is that Les, I think throughout the novel, has real trouble imagining any romantic relationship that differs from the one that he had with the poet who's recently died, Robert Brownburn. And I wonder if you think that's true for a lot of people, like if we struggle to change ourselves from the experience of that first very impactful love relationship. Gosh, now you're getting very deep. I mean, I all I can say is I have found among my friends that that is, was true, but now mm. we're all much older and those events are mythology, you know, of okay. being 18, 19 and 20 and that it's our duty to get over it, you know, or find it funny or make it into a story so that it doesn't ruin the more mature relationships we have. But it's hard, you know, the way that people get cast into that they only like a certain type or they themselves are a type or these things are barriers to love. They're not opportunities for love. Speaking of, I mean, there's one fascinating question that haunts much of the novel, and namely that is, is Arthur Less, in fact, a quote unquote, bad gay? And I want to briefly read a passage near the beginning of the book where this question first comes up. Is Arthur Less a bad gay? He's certainly bad at it, but let us examine this more closely. When he moved to New York after college in the 80s, Arthur Les certainly tried his hardest to be gay. He joined a gym that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a political party that turned out to believe a conspiracy theory about government health clinics. He joined a German language society that turned out to be a sex dungeon. He joined a book group that turned out to be only for a political party. He joined a role-playing game club that turned out to be a sex dungeon. And he joined a sex dungeon that turned out to be a government health clinic. It was all so confusing. But what confused him most was how sexually free every man was. Over and over, Les was told that he needed to quote-unquote loosen up. He was certain this was true, but how had absolutely everybody else loosened up and not him? It seemed statistically impossible that so many men, particularly so many ordinary, clean-cut American men, could feel so carefree about sex. You couldn't just shake your past like that, could you? And then in the end, he kind of asks himself, am I the only frigid homosexual in New York? It turned out he was. So he left. <laughs> so what does I want to get into? Because, you know, sometimes I think about bad gay as the, that podcast, Bad Gays, about just, you know, gays who do bad things. But well, here right. we have a kind of more political sense of what a bad gay is. So can you talk a little bit about what it means for Arthur Less to be a bad gay and how that question resonates for you in contemporary gay culture? Well, I mean, he's talking about sort of 
early 80s gay culture, which is a completely different vibe. True. But back then it was basically the 70s that you were supposed to be sexually wild as part of the sexual liberation movement because the gay civil rights movement was actually part of the sexual liberation movement at the time. And so that's why everyone fought not to close the bathhouses once AIDS was rampant because that was the fight was to have bathhouses. And I come from that era in which I felt like, I don't know, I'm not as wild as everyone else. How did that happen so quickly? <laughs> I don't get it. Especially because I was terrified. So that stood in the way mm. of feeling sexually free was that I was just young enough not to have lived through the bathhouses. I was just left with terror. Mm-hmm. But now it feels different to me because it is, since he is a somewhat of a public figure, he's not well-read at all. He's meant to represent something about a community that is vast and changing. And he's clumsy at almost everything. And certainly that, like he can't Mm -hmm. seem to get his footing to have the ending of his books end the way that would be uplifting for the movement. And I think that this is not the only community where writers struggle to be, to represent, but still tell the story they're they're bound to tell in the way they want to tell it. Well, that's the impossible task, right? Is to represent as one atomized person, especially a community like the LGBTQ community, which is so vast and diverse, like the idea of anyone, I guess, in some sense, being a good gay or a bad gay. I mean, I guess there could be gays that literally do bad things. Yes. (laughs) But I do find this question of being good or bad, meaning that there's some homogenous type that we all must idealize or revert to you know, feels in its own way, kind of like the Clone Wars of the 80s, which I was not, you know, do not support. Myself. No, no, but we see it happening. There is a move towards homogenization in any community, especially if it's mm. on television. And I certainly found it odd being an unknown writer, writing less, and then suddenly, like, I could go to a pool party in Palm Springs and be recognized, and, which I was, and I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> I'm now representing something. I don't know what that means. What am I, what does it mean to you all? I'm sorry, <laughs> you know, but I do, I find humility is never the wrong path for me. Um, and it's certainly, <laughs> I recommend it highly to anyone else <laughs> to say that I can't represent the community and I'm doing it badly and I'm trying my best and failing. <laughs> to kind of shift to another identity, which would be the writer's identity. There's a really great moment in which Les and this fictional character, H.H. Mandern, who is a wonderfully cartoonish version of a popular sci-fi writer. H.H. Mandern. Oh, yes, sorry. (laughs) H, that's right, the triple H, H -H H.H.H. Mandern. So there's a moment in which the two of them are kind of talking about whether or not it's, quote unquote, worth it to be a writer. Right. So Mandarin is asking this question of less in part because he fears that he may have lost his family and other things of greater importance in the pursuit of a writer's career. And in his own way, kind of less is struggling with this question as it concerns both his relationships that we talked about with Robert Brownburn, but also with Freddie Pellew. And ultimately, less reasons, and I think this is in very Lessian fashion, that he just simply had no choice, right? His hands were off the wheel. And you put it this way in kind of interior monologue, which is, to Les, it's impossible to answer the question because it is all he knows. It's like asking a dung beetle if it's worth it. Of course there's a better way to be. Of course there would be an easier life. One could be a leopard or a crocodile. 
but a dung beetle is only good at one thing. (laughs) And so I love that response, as well as Mandarin's response, in which he claims that we live in, quote, an age of iron in which man has forsaken the gods and only a fraction of the old magic remains and there are imposters everywhere. But he reminds Arthur that he and Arthur are, quote unquote, a fraction of the old magic that remains. Can you talk a little bit about this? And this all happens over about two pages, but it's yes. <laughs> incredibly moving and like very poignant and obviously a large question. So can you talk a little bit about how you wrestle with that question of meaning and value with regard to the task and identity of being a writer? I mean, I think a lot of writers find ourselves sitting, why am I doing this? Is this relevant at all, especially these past five years. Like, is this, if I ever publish it all, it'll come out five years from now. The world's on fire. What am I doing? You know, this is, how is this a relevant project against our own, no matter how much we might not admit it, grandiosity, a feeling Mm -hmm. that we are engaged in a grand project and that we're writing for the future for some kind of eternal readership, which is, you know, arrogant, but necessary when you're sitting down and doing something. You sit with both. You sit both saying this book is the most amazing book ever written. It's about everything in the world. And this is total crap. (laughs) Why would anyone read this? I just saw a TV show that's more relevant than what I'm writing right now. And, (laughs) you know, that struggle. But it's also a a generational struggle. You know, H.H.H. Mandarin resembles some fantasy and science fiction authors, but I also really was thinking of the older generation of the grand old white man, the Norman Mailer, you know, the which was the American author who would send down statements from on high. And there was a arrogance was part of the formula. That's what we wanted. We wanted sort of total jerks to be in charge of letters. And that's vanished completely to a new generation that is full of doubt and absolute certainty at the same time. And that sort of conflict of those two types was what I wanted to put down. I mean, how do you wrestle with that? Like, how do you make your way through those moments of self-doubt? I very very much resonate with what you say about you both have to believe that it is the most important thing that you are working on in order to get through it, while also recognizing that it's like nothing is really that important. Right. So how do you kind of get your way through those blocks? Well, the best way is to have nobody reading you because then you don't worry. (laughs) And so it was hard for this book to know for the first time someone might be reading it. And I just had to banish that and try to enjoy myself. You know, I thought, because I have to admit, I'm taking on grand themes in this book. I tried to bury them so you don't quite see (laughs) how much I'm worrying about the United States of America or racial injustice or whiteness or maleness. You know, it's buried under some ridiculous scenes. And I think my editor was, of course, would worry about taking on those. She's like, just make it funny. But I wanted to, it's not funny unless it's actually really hard. You know, mm-hmm. so that was the, and I certainly cut a lot from this book that I thought wasn't hard enough. It was too silly. You are listening to the LARP Radio Hour. 
I've been speaking with Andrew Sean Greer, author of Less is Lost. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. I have Eun Lee on the line. Her latest novel is The Book of Goose, and she has a book recommendation for us. Yes. So, you know, before I recommend my book for the day, I just want to mention I've been reading two new novels, one from Edison McCracken and one from Lynn Staggerstrom. But the book I really wanted to talk about was a novel called Villette, and it's written by Charlotte Bronte. It's a lesser known work than Jane Eyre, which, you know, we all have heard of Jane Eyre. We all have read it, you know, watched the movies. But to me, I think Villette is a more successful novel in many ways. So it was published in 1858 and it was partially autobiographical. It was about this young woman who penniless who went out to Villette, which was actually a fictional setting of Brussels. She went out there to become, first of all, she became a nanny, and then she moved up to become an English teacher in a French-speaking boarding school. And the reason I really loved this novel, even though it was written in the 1850s, I thought it was a very contemporary novel. It's about it quintessentially, it's a novel about working, and it's a novel about an immigrant experience. So the narrator, Lucy Snow, the entire novel was to show how she tried to make a living as a foreigner in a country where she did not speak the language. And the economic uncertainty, the religious pressures, the language and cultural barriers, and her emotional journeys through, you know, isolation, loneliness, depression, romance, all these things I thought was one of the most contemporary novels written in the 19th century. So I want to just recommend that book called Villette. That is a favorite actually of my colleague here oh. on the show, Medea Ocher. Yes, she loves oh. that book. And I've, I started it and I was getting so into it, but I haven't completed it. Oh, yeah. you know? That's a great recommendation. When did you hear about the book? Had you known about it a long time before you started reading it? Well, this is my, I've been rereading the book and I read the first time I read maybe 15 years ago, I was just surprised by how it was less known than Jane Eyre. I thought Villette was an underrated novel. So the reason I'm rereading is because I'm going to lead APS together with the public space. I'm going to lead a group reading of Villette in the fall. That's great. Well, that's good to know. Mm-hmm. Will you tell us the title and the author one more time? Okay. So the novel I would like to recommend is Villette by Charlotte Bronte. Nice. Thank you so much, Ian, for okay. coming and talking with us. That was Ian Lee. Her latest novel is The Book of Goose. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Andrew Sean Greer, author of Less is Lost. Well, let's actually talk about your satirical style, because I think that it's one of the things that clearly readers really relish in reading your work. And I think it gets a lot of its punch 
from the quite inventive way that you put together a scene, right? And this can even happen within a paragraph. You know, in some ways, I think of your prose, it feels to me like, a, and I hope you'll like this reference, like a Jonathan Adler centerpiece. It's both attractive and elegant, yet cartoonish and like dazzlingly so in large part because of its unexpected elements, right? So like, I'm thinking of this like, upturned whale that is like a water pitcher for the table and there's something that's like very Jonathan Adler about it and that's a little bit what I feel when I read your prose so can you just talk a little bit about your style and maybe how you developed it as a writer oh that makes sense the idea of being both serious and not serious at the same time like literally at the same time like it is and very well crafted there's a very serious attention to detail, to craft, to pacing and scene in your writing. And yet what you are describing is patently ridiculous, you know? The paragraph that you read about the sex dungeon and the health clinic, I cannot tell you how many times I rewrote that just for pacing. And yet I thought, and this sounds bizarre, I was like, this is a really important paragraph for me because I'm describing the bizarreness certainly of 80s, gay urban culture where all of these, the confusion of finding, we didn't have bears and otters and, you know, there were no types. It was just sort of they're the guy in the work boots and the, you know, the shirt or not the guy. And uh, <laughs> the utter confusion of all that, I wanted to get across the, and I knew it has to happen in language. I mean, that's the thing that I think readers don't often think about is that writers mm. are completely, I mean, you know, of course you like scenes and characters, but it comes down to language. And that's what makes these funny books and not serious books is the, I'm looking in my thesaurus and finding the most ridiculous word I can use because it's funnier, you know, which is not so different from the language play of my earlier, much more serious books where I was looking for a fancy word. But this one I get, I can pick the fancy word and we all know I'm kidding. What you're saying is interesting to me because does the is humor natural to you? Like, are you a dry, witty person yourself, or is it something you really work at on the page? I am not a witty person. I think I'm a funny person, but I'm not. I don't have a bon mot. I'm very much the guy on on the staircase who thinks of the right thing to say later. But that's perfect for a novelist because you're always the guy on the staircase. You got plenty of time. So I am definitely, Freddie is funnier and smarter than I am because I have had time to craft Freddie's narrative voice and make him seem like he's off the cuff, really good at things. What sort of writing do you like best? I'm also curious kind of who your influences are in terms of this particular and very unique kind of style that you have. I mean, I think it is some early 20th century British stuff. You know, it's Woodhouse. I read a lot during the pandemic because it's it's satisfyingly always the same. And yet there's the invention is just enough to keep you going. And it's the level of language and dialogue. Mm-hmm. Or like another old British novel, Cold Comfort Farm, I found super funny. All British all they all know it and we've never heard of it. <laughs> And it's a really funny satire of a genre that we're not even aware of, which is the English pastoral novel of the 19th century. You don't have to know about those to find the book really funny. Oh, that sounds great. I will actually definitely look for that. You know, in both less books, we have, I guess, if we think about the genre, 
they're road trip books. They're kind of travelogues of a type, and they're about character development, character change over the course of a long journey. But can you talk a little bit about, you know, do you like the road trip novel? Like, why does that work as a kind of format, at least for these two books? I have to say, I like a road trip more than a road trip novel. But I like a road trip, what was that movie recently with Sean Penn, where he plays like a crazy goth rocker who goes on a road trip across America? This must be the place. I think, do you know this one? Oh, I do not. And I literally will watch everything. So I, I mean, have not seen that. I don't like a road trip movie, but when I tell you that Sean Penn is like a whispery goth rocker who is, his father dies, he finds out his father was a Nazi hunter and he goes on a road trip to kill the man who tortured his father in World War II. And it's a comedy. He's married to Francis McDormand. Do you need more? David Byrne oh, that shows all up sounds in it. Great. I'm, so, I'm really surprised I haven't seen it. Actually, it's the kookiest movie, but it's because it's so bizarre that it allows us to enjoy a road trip. You know, there's bison and things that are you expect on an American road trip, and uh, it's a joy to watch, and it's funny and therefore poignant too. I also wanted to ask, just to circle back to something that you said earlier, that, you know, part of your concern as you went into the writing of this book is about what's happening in the U.S. right now. In a sense, you know, it's like the first book, Les, he's going on something of a world tour, right? And that is its own kind of provides lots of its own humor. But here, you know, without sacrificing any humor, he's really staying within the States and with this kind of weird variety of cultures that we bind together under quote unquote, you know, American identity or the United States. Can you talk just a little bit about kind of where you see us right now? Possibly an impossible question, but also kind of how you were writing through that in the novel. Well, I was, I started off, I mean, before I had won a Pulitzer Prize or less sold a lot, I book came out in 2017. So, but in 2016, after that election, I sat and thought, I don't understand this country. I mean, yeah. I was reading all of the trends and exit interviews and I, I got it wrong. Everyone got it wrong. And I thought I might write about the country differently now, but I thought I'm going to go to these things that scare me that I don't get. I'm going to rent an RV and travel through the Southwest and the deep South for six weeks and talk to people in diners and bars, and I won't talk politics, and I'll just see who the people are I haven't met. And I got all that that research before the pandemic hit, obviously. And then I was, I spent the pandemic mostly in Italy, not in the country, which gives mm. you a weird view, because they have no grasp of how vast the country is, or the variety of people even the Europe itself is a kind of United States, but they don't believe that at all. They're not a country. They're an economic union. You know, they don't buy it for a second mm. that Greece and right. Ireland are, right. are somehow should agree about abortion. You know, like that's not possible. But and yet in the United States, we're supposed to be somehow homogenous. And it just looks so improbable to me from a distance and sad and scary and even more obviously now since i finished the book it just seems we're torn apart from basic mistakes at the beginning and that's why i have a character say to arthur less what if the whole idea of america is wrong you americans will never think about that 
awful idea. It's like a divorce being yeah. mentioned in a in a marriage that's in trouble. Yeah, I think that is true. And I was going to ask you, you know, kind of, do you feel better about it now than you did when you were back not, doing the research? Not at all. Not at all. And I think in a way, the book is almost like a sweet memory of 2017, you know, when we thought we're going to get through this. And we thought we had with Biden elected. Yeah. And we're not, we're not through it. No, it's no, worse. definitely not. So to, to return as we wrap up to some more hopefully positive okay. <laughs> <laughs> questions. Do you see, I don't want to give away the end, but I'm sure as readers of your first book will know, like there is not going to be an unhappy ending to a less novel, but do you see anything more for less after this book? Or is this kind of the end of the cycle for you? Well, I'm going to, I think there must be a sports term for passing the ball to a, another teammate. Is it passing the ball? So yeah, you're in the wrong company here. I have no idea what that sports term is. Some reader will write punting. Is that sure. anyway to my future self? I have no idea. My next book is not about Arthur Less. I feel okay. I feel good about what I've done so far, but it's such a wonderful way for me to tell a story with that narrator and that protagonist as a way of that's a sort of loving chiding humor that I bet I'll be drawn to it again. That sounds great. And in the meantime, you have another book that people can talk about around the pool at Palm Springs. Yes, great. <laughs> <laughs> Which is like life goals anyways. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Andrew Sean Greer, author most recently of Less is Lost. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vodden. <laughs>